think back to July 2009. Where were you in your career? You've probably made some serious changes since then. Different companies, maybe a promotion or two. Well, my guest today is a bit of a rarity. She's been at the same company for more than 13 years, but she's definitely gotten a promotion or eight since she started out as an SDR at Salesforce in 2009. Jessa Jennings is the Regional Vice President Mid-Market Canada in the Manufacturing Vertical at Salesforce. In fact, she's the first ever female Regional Vice President in Salesforce Canada. She's a badass seller, and I will probably embarrass her right now by saying that when her name comes up in conversations with anyone I ever speak with, they refer to her as the most intuitive, influential, and strategic seller that they've ever met. And she's one of those people who set the tone. When she walks into a room, the room adjusts to her temperature. And the kicker here is that she's a genuine good hang and great human being on top of all of that selling talent. As we often explore on Winning as Women, the skills that make you a great seller are also the behaviors that make you a great human. So I'm very excited to have Jessa join me today as a guest. Jessa, welcome. Thanks, Jody. That was super sweet. And I'm really excited to be here. I'm so excited to have you. And I, I know I kicked it off by talking about your background in history. And I would love to take you back to those very first few months that you had at Salesforce. You, you're a brand new rep. Uh-huh. You're a woman in a very male-dominated environment. What do you remember when you think back to 2009? I was it was a great time. I will say that I remember being my background was advertising and co-op roles prior with from accounting to the government. And I really had never done sales before. And I come from a background where my family's in a lot of like financial planning um, type sales roles. And I just had a a, candidly, I, I had a kind of car salesman thought process when it came to sales. Um, but I had a friend that told me this was a great company and that, and I always wanted to get into sales and it was the right fit. And I was completely wowed by the level of a players in the room and the passion and the energy. And I just wanted to be around that. I was intimidated by the fact that a lot of them had sold before and I hadn't. Um, and I was aware for the first time in my life that I, I was the only female in the room. And it both intimidated me um, and also motivated me. And I, it took me a while, but I started seeing it as instead of letting it intimidate me, um, it gave me an opportunity to shine because being the only does that for you at times. So um, flash forward, I still have that resiliency. I'm, I'm back in a you know an industry that isn't very female dominated. Manufacturing vertical is... Um, doesn't have a lot of executives in the room that are females a lot of the time. So um, it's a learning and a resiliency that I still carry with me today. Yeah. And I think, you know, I mean, I can at least relate to what you're describing of being the only. And I'm not sure if you experienced, um, if you've experienced this before, but something that a tra- I had to make a transition from thinking of myself as the only and proving myself to actually shifting into oh, I don't want to be the only. I need to make space. And it's also on me to make space for other women and encourage um, other women to, you know, step into whatever I'm, you know, had been leaning into initially. Yeah. And I think I, you know, I was lucky that I had a natural confidence. And I think it was from sports, you know, the kind of fake it till you make it. I I, sometimes had always kind of been 
the younger person on the team were the least experienced in an athletic world. So I, I really had kind of that fake it till you make it to get over imposter syndrome um, in my background. And I think that's really what I applied here. And then I, I again, I use it as motivation to say, I don't have that role model today at the organization, but I want to be the first woman in the room. And I, I want that to be a career path that people so, could see. So it really motivated me. And I kind of use that to suppress more of those, the insecurities of being, okay, can I do this? That the whole imposter syndrome, I think was really real, really real for me in 2009. Yeah. I mean, you're at a, you're at a new table, you're in a new room. Yeah. Uh, and I know, I, I know that feeling. I was that young child who the, my now being a parent, like get away from the table the adults are talking but I was that child who was you know there at the table participating in the grown-up conversation and I think I've had those moments you know throughout my career and I think it's you know I think it's so great that you are there you were that first person and now you know there's more and more women that are in tech and and stepping into leadership roles Um, and there is I got that you know that stat because there was an early profile or a profile of you in 2021 on the Salesforce website that does mention a sales competition that you participated in in early days. And I'm curious uh, why that was such a defining moment. Take me through what that was like for you. So I think it was was a competition in the first role you're in at Salesforce, you're really qualifying inbound leads um, and and then booking meetings. So it was really a small part of the sales cycle. And the competition was presenting a whole sales cycle. You're basically, you're an account executive. You're running the pitch to a room and a a customer and kind of a mock sales call and then closing on next steps and articulating value. And I had made it through enough levels that I got to present in the finals. Um, And there was a team of us. There was, it was three of us. Um, And we had an executive come in from San Francisco. And at the time when I started, we were 2,400 employees at Salesforce and only a billion in revenue. So that was a long time ago. And so having you know, being a dot on the map in, in a small team in Toronto, having that executive come in and candidly, he's now at the, the top of our executive leadership team today. Um, but having him say that was such a good presentation and, and that he would actually hire me to be in that closing role today. And I was two steps back, nervous about whether I was ready for the next step. And he's telling me I'm already presenting well enough to to hire me for the next one. I was asking if anyone was taking notes. I was like, did you, did you hear that? <laughs> Um, but it, it literally fits with me today. I still see him and I, and I get triggered back to that moment where I was like, you're your own worst enemy right now. Like if he sees that in you, like step it up and like that's behind you, you've made it. I really felt like I'd made it at that point. Um, but it gave me the confidence. And I think about that all the time because I don't even think he knows how impactful that was. And so I think about that when I'm coaching my reps or I have a lot of conversations with with uh, women in our organization that are going on their first mat leave or trying to manage their career through that. And I think about those moments where I can instill in them that little bit of your brand is strong enough. It can handle a year out of the business or, you know, I'm the only female in the room. Like, what are those moments where you can just be like, I see you. You're great. Believe in yourself. And I think that that was monumental for me. It really was. It was a pivotal moment. I love that. It's like you're... Um people are seeing you different than differently than you're seeing you. Yeah. And you need to actually see this current version of you and that future potential version of you, not this older version that that you're still holding on to. You stepped yeah. you stepped into a onto a bigger stage already. Yeah. And I think we focus on our gaps, right? We focus sometimes on our weaknesses and not necessarily our strengths as much, which 
in sales, you need that confidence and that conviction and, and you need to focus on what you're good at. Totally. Okay. So during this time, um, you're getting your feet wet at Salesforce, but the company itself was also going through a pivotal time in its history. Yeah. Uh, you're building a category. So tell me about what you learned about selling and what was essentially like a brand new thing, like the cloud. Yeah, it's so funny to think about now. And that's when I really feel a little long in the tooth. Like I'm, like, I'm getting old when I think back to 2009 and we were just selling, we just were a sales tool. I think we just started rolling out Service Cloud. And I say that because I'm, I'm literally, you know, now I'm competing against thousands of competitors. And, and back then it was very few, but it wasn't even, I, I had to I had to sell this mind shift of this like technology shift to the cloud and everybody, there was so much fear around it and none of our competitors were doing it. If anything, they were putting in the FUD of it's dangerous, everything, you know, don't don't go to the cloud, which is crazy now because who, who doesn't have a cloud offering, right? We all see it as the way. But back then you're literally holding people's hands to kind of educate them through the fear. Um, so it's a completely different selling motion. I think um, on top of that, we, you know, we, we, I will say from a competitive perspective, we could very much compete because we were clearly innovative and different. And so we were disrupting mm. a space. So that was the, the easy part of the job is people wanted to hear about what we were doing because it was different and it was new. So I'm a big believer of, you know, people know what they know. And, well, we all, we all know what we know and we know what we don't know right? But we don't know what we don't know. And that is the value that I think I always say to my sales team, what are you bringing to the table? Like people want to spend time with you when you tell them something about their business, their market, their competitor, their product, their team that they didn't know about. And that was something that I think back then, and even right now, like we're always, I'm fortunate at Salesforce. One of the reasons I stay is we're very innovative and we always get to bring something new and exciting and educational to the table for our customers. Um, and I think for any company that's kind of a, in the disruptive space, that's that's how you get people on the phone. And then I think it's our job as sales leaders to understand, okay, then what? Like, how do we keep them interested? And how do we nurture that interest through education to actually uh, evaluation and consideration? Okay, so that's that was my next question is, you know, we're a lot of sellers that, um, that might be listening are in organizations that <laughs> are still in education-led sales motions. And they're getting people excited. Um, and yet, what is required to move from excitement into action and actually spending? Mm -hmm. I think the this is where this is where I think selling gets interesting because it's a little bit of a dance, right? There's the art and the science of sales, and you can have the science and that that playbook down. Um, but I think, I think we were talking about this the other day that there's that article with the Harvard, Harvard business review where everything starts with trust. And I always say to, to my team, like, who's your champion? And this champion needs to know like, what's in it for them. Like, why would they take this forward? Why would they work with you to give you data to build a business base to understand why change? Um, how do you get intel from them if, if this is something they're considering other vendors with and, and who and why? And I think a champion is so important important when you're bringing something to the table that is new for an organization and to really take it to that next phase. Um, anyway, that article talks about authenticity. I will say it's like ale, the analogy. I don't know why I went with that one, but uh, authenticity, logic, and empathy. And I think if you can bring those to the table early in a sales cycle, I think it builds a lot of trust and they will go on that journey with you because you can't, 
you can't have a point of view past interest unless you learn about the business, right? You you can't you can say I can say why Salesforce, but I can't say why now for your organization or why you should change unless I get some information from you. Um, otherwise, I'm just driving the bus through a sales cycle, and suddenly you get to the last stop and nobody's on the bus, right? Like it's great. We're going to the demo stage. We're going to the discovery stage. We're access to power. We're multi-threaded. We're in the proposal. But you're kind of running a sales cycle without making sure that people are engaged and bought in and, you know, you're, you're, you're addressing their needs and concerns along the way. So I think too often I see with, with sellers that are earlier in their career, they're just so excited to get to the next step of the sales cycle that any interest is a sales cycle. Versus really qualifying mm-hmm. up front, earning the trust, having some of those difficult conversations to understand what do I need to invest in you? What do I need to learn about you and your business and your personal motivation to drive this project forward? Yeah, it becomes more about um, the sales process and understanding pipeline execution and what's happening internally mm-hmm. versus focusing on the external, focusing on the customer, understanding their business and getting curious about what would move them or motivate them in this moment to need and want and particularly drive forward um, something that and to solve a problem that you, you know, have tend to have a solution or happen to have a solution to help them solve. Well, and I think, you know, I've noticed over the years, a lot of pipeline dies at stage two and stage two to us is kind of that discovery phase. And so I think that's where the dance comes through of sales, where, you know, stage two, the process is it's my discovery, I'm building value, who's the decision maker, what's the timeline, um, you know, quantify the pain. But I don't think, um, I think the deals that are progressing, it's usually because after that discovery, where we have someone who just spent time with us to tell us about their business and answer our questions, on that call, we didn't really dig in and like kind of twist the knife a little bit to the pain of like, let's quantify this together and together determine, like my time is valuable too. And if it's not a fit, let's part ways as friends. But, you know, that comes back to that triangle of authenticity, logic, and empathy is building that trust to say, hey, I don't I don't want to take you down this journey or take any more of your time if this isn't something of value. So help me understand. And I always say to my team, is it a $10,000 problem or is it a million dollar problem? Like put the stakes in the ground because People don't know the numbers. A lot of companies don't, especially when it's a new category, right? People are like, I don't know how to quantify that. Oh, I don't know. So either they're not the right person or sometimes they really just maybe don't track those numbers in their business. And I think when you can do that gut check by put, I would say, put stakes in the ground and see which where they kind of fall and then dig in a little bit more to help get to that. Because if it's a $10,000 problem, I don't think it makes sense to solve it, at least not with me. And maybe we can consider these other things. But if we're talking about a million-dollar problem, then I think it makes sense to continue. Do you agree? Okay, this is my recommended next step. steps. What do you think? So I think that's what I notice in, in our sales cycle over the years sometimes is we do all this discovery, but we're leaving that call and our prospect might not actually – we see the pain – And we assume they see the pain, but we actually have to like sit in that together and kind of just let it marinate to like, is this something that you will champion and help me build? This is step one of many. So are you willing to kind of go on this evaluation path with me? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that I think that skills like, you know, empathy, um, but and authenticity uh, that you talked about, it's an it requires an openness and a curiosity on your end too, to say, is this the right fit? You know, do we need this right now? 
Um, yeah. And if they don't need it, that's not a win-win for either of us. Yeah. Um, and so, and then I also am hearing the the need to summarize and the need to reflect back and to hear in that prospect's words um, their understanding and interpretation of the you know why change why now because um, if they don't have that nailed and then you leave that room com- the next conversation they have with someone else internally you yeah. know is not going to be influential at the level you need it to be. Yeah. And one of the things I always say when my team says like there's a lot of pain and I think any sales leader could do this, I always like to say, great, this sounds like a great deal. Let me call their CFO right now. What should I say? What should I say? Because it sounds like it, it makes sense. Like how much money should they spend with this problem? And and a lot of times we can't answer that. It's just kind of a joke I say with my team. But if we can't answer that, they can't answer that. And and we're <laughs> the ones who are actually, if, if we can't answer it, they're never going to be able to answer it. So that's just a sign to me of how great was our discovery. Um, and should we maybe pause and reflect on what those gaps are before moving forward? Make sure people totally. are on the line. It's like you, yeah, you have, um, like as a seller, I think, you have your you have an easier time connecting the dots because you know your solution. You're hearing about their challenges, and there are leaps that you are making that they aren't necessarily following. And so we need to like our job is to be able to connect those dots and be you know what you were describing earlier. I was hearing as we're prescriptive. You know, yeah. if there's a connection here and this makes sense, you know, we advise because we've done this so many times. You know that we do this thing next. You know, do you agree? Is this big enough? Is it bad enough for us and hairy enough for us yeah. to actually tackle? Is it worth our time? Yeah. Do you want to do it with me? <laughs> yeah. I know that it comes down to a bit of that too, right? No. Oh, I think it's the like, why change? Why do it now? And why do it with, in my case, Salesforce? I, you know, I think though, when you're summarizing, the key is that don't know, don't know. Right. So what I'm mm-hmm. hearing is this, right? We agree here. I'm hearing you don't have this. This is a challenge. Have you considered, or also I've worked with other customers that, and I think when you start getting out of that framework, I know as a, as soon as somebody does that in my life, I'm like, oh, when are you free next? What else are you going to teach me about my business or my team? Because that was a blind spot for me or it just wasn't in my, in my, my know-how, I guess. So um, I've, I've never had somebody, if we actually, if you actually articulate on a call, I've never had somebody not like go dark. Everybody wants to spend more time with you when you're teaching them something about their business. And I think that's why we want to get multi-threaded, right? That's why we want to have a lot of connects in an organization. We want to uncover all the pains and get to know kind of the friction points, put that into one point of view to make all those little problems kind of one bigger problem and strategy or solution that we can go after. Yeah. And so I think that like the shift that you have to make as a seller in that education-led sales motion is we have to be curious through discovery and then we have to use that discovery to be able to um, uh, solidify, create, you know, a point of view or a perspective or solidify the challenge that, you know, that we must overcome together. And that's the articulation moment that that seems to be required to go from, oh, I'm kind of interested, sounds new, I feel like I should stay on top of it, to, oh, I actually need to solve this here. There's that something outside of how I've been viewing things. Um, yeah. Like that ripple effect in the rest of the business. You know, what is that KPI that that is actually impacted if we don't solve this thing today? Yes. Okay. And it's definitely, I think they don't know. They don't know what they don't know. And you've got to teach them that this is something they need to know about. Yeah. And you don't know what you don't know about their business yet. And that's where yeah. it's such a, a co-creative 
dance and process. You you actually require each other. And I think that as um, you know, as sellers early in your career, or anytime you step into a net new role, you step into this this um, mindset. I think that you have to go at it alone. Um, it's on you to come up with. I have to have the perfect presentation. I have to come up yeah. with the numbers. That always flops and fails. There's never buy-in. It must be you coming together, holding hands. You know, seeing that same, um, you know, uh, outlook and perspective. You know, it's so funny when it, that just flashed back for me to the imposter syndrome. I even think when you're a new seller, I vividly remember in 2009 being on on discoveries or, or having conversations and. Uh, you know, you talk to companies, every company has their jargon, right? And they've got all their acronyms. And, you know, my, at the time was like ERP and MRP and SQL and all this stuff I'd never heard before. And I remember all my notes and just circling them and writing them down and kind of like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then at the end saying to my solution engineer, my manager, I was like, what is this? What is this? What is this? And, you know, I wasn't comfortable at the beginning, not knowing everything. And then now I realize I say to my reps all the time, I'm like, you won't know everything. It's impossible to know everything about your business. And those are those authentic moments to have with your customer to say, excuse me, can you repeat that? I just want to make sure I'm understanding that correctly. Can you give me an example? And I'm like, find your ways to ask for clarification because forecast accuracy does not mean the same thing to everybody. So I I try to give my team those moments to battle imposter syndrome or especially if you're new to tech or it's a beast. I mean, our company right now coming into sell, there's a lot to know. There's a big portfolio of products, um, especially if you might be new to tech. And so I think I try to give them those moments to just be like, just be human in those moments, be authentic, just build some trust here. They don't know a lot about Salesforce. The moment you've done one evaluation, you've probably evaluated more technology than your customer has a lot of times. So sit in that kind of power and just focus on genuine curiosity and really wanting to have a deep understanding of their business. And they will appreciate that. Yes. And that's the, the, you know, paint done from Brene Brown, where there are so many ways to solve a problem. And when I say, you know, I'm going to, you know, whatever, X, Y, Z, you might be picturing ABC. And it's that, you know, that discovery and that clarification process and great question asking process that stems from curiosity that gets us to a point where we see that same, you know, paint done, that same done image, we're understanding where we need to get to. And that also from a you know, human skill perspective makes the other person go, ah, they get it. They understand me. They know what my problems are. Now I'm way more confident in bringing in my boss, my peer, yeah. you know, whoever that is for this person to speak with because they're not going to make me look silly. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we, it's funny. <laughs> I was looking, you know, at your, your bio and kind of the background and the timing and, you know, 2009, it was right in the wake of the Great Recession. We are 14 years later. We find we'll ourselves in, you know, equally challenging headwinds and challenging times. Uh, so tell me about what you're doing as a manager today to make your team more efficient, make them more effective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I think while so much has changed, um, I feel like nothing's changed. At the end of the time, no one likes be- no one likes spending money, especially privately owned companies. Or I mean, no company likes spending money. Um, so yeah. I think regardless, we just have to sell more to the CFO. Like we have to. The, really, what I'm doing is fine tuning the playbook. And I think where we could have gotten away with um, 
skipping steps or um, softer ROIs. Uh, now we really have to crunch the numbers and, and it really has to make, make sense financially. Um, I look at kind of the, the recession and even COVID having a good impact in our business in that I think it also kicked a lot of companies in the butt of like, they need to change. Like, I think those companies that were a little bit more legacy with technology, um, at least in my space, have they can't, they kept next year, next year, next year, next five year plan. And I think that, you know, everyone having to work remote and accessing your information and, you know, selling with your, like, how are you communicating with your customers? I think that really kind of got the the motion, um, like remove the inertia of, of buying technology in a way. And I think just everybody went online to buy their groceries, I think, for the most part. I did. Um, <laughs> I also had a newborn at home, so I was buying everything online and spraying it down and doing doing whatever. And now going into the recession, it's just kind of one thing after another. But at the end of the day, what I keep saying to my team is focus on the basics and make sure that you're really getting into the weeds with why why they need to do this right now. Because this isn't a project that we can do five years from now or even one year from now. You're actually already two years behind. And if you're selling in that <laughs> motion and you understand their business well enough to do that, um, I feel like the the right people in the organization are going to partner with you to say, you know, finally, help me, help me. I've been, I've been kicking this can for a while. We just need to find those people in the organization and get a seat at the table, really. Okay. So you're a, you know, advice time. You're a, okay. <laughs> a seasoned yeah. leader. Um, what would you, what advice would you give to, um, to other leaders who are trying to um, get their teams to be more influential with the CFO. What tactical things would you ha- have them lean into with their teams? So I think one, it's the business acumen, of, of the financial acumen, right? If, if especially if you're dealing with publicly traded companies, there's a lot of information that you can know about that organization. So I, I don't think there's a single CFO right now that's not trying to reduce costs. I think what's challenging and for us, what is what is your play for a CFO? For us, being a platform, vendor consolidation is, is a great value add that we have. Um, for you as a niche player, it might be around productivity and efficiency. I think a lot of organizations don't know how to calculate the business case on that. So for me with the CFO, it's all about numbers, which means you're going down to every business unit that your, your tool or technology could potentially solve an issue for, and you're gathering that information and you're putting it together and you're presenting it to the CFO with conviction of current state, future state. This is the challenge. This is what it's costing you. And I think if you can't say this is what it's costing you today, then I don't really think you've earned the right to be in front of the CFO as of yet. But I have actually had more response from CFOs today than ever before. They want to know moment. what's happening in their organizations. They're all looking at their their vendors. They're all looking at their their tech yeah. spend per se. So I think it can be a blessing and a curse. But if you're well prepared and you're articulating it to what they're um, like, a big one for us is M and A companies growing through M and A. There's CFOs are compensated on time to value. So the faster that we can show them how they can acquire these companies. Um, merge them into their organization, people and process and get the cross-sell, upsell and, and upside of why they acquired that company faster. That's what's top of mind for them, right? That's a KPI that they're linked to. So I think we just really need to get into the, and every CFO is different and every industry is different. So it's really getting get personal into the with mindset. what that CFO. Yeah. 
Yes. Understand the persona, understand the mindset, figure out what specifically that CFO is measured on, and then have your team speak to exactly that. Yeah, exactly. So before I let you go, um, I want to ask you the same question that we asked all of the guests on Winning as Women. Uh, What does winning as a woman mean to you today? Mm. I think it's being your whole self at work. I think it's being authentically you. And I think it's having a seat at the table, like always pulling up a chair to the table and having the confidence and conviction to do that. And because I do think women are naturally community-based. And I think that if every woman has that mindset, I think women in leadership will just accelerate 10x. Well, I like being a woman who has a seat at your table. I always appreciate what you have to say. Uh, So Jessa, thank you so much for being a guest today. And what's the best way for our listeners and community to connect more with you? LinkedIn. So I'm just coming back off to mat leave. So I've kind of unplugged a little bit and I'm I'm back in it now. So I've been, um, you'll see me more on LinkedIn. I'm hoping to get more um, reconnected with the community there, but feel free to reach out. I love this stuff. Happy to talk about it and always happy to support women. Amazing. Thank you again, Jessa. And thank you to our listeners for joining us today. Make sure to like and subscribe if you enjoyed this episode. And we'll catch you next time on Winning as Women. Hey everyone, and welcome to my ad promo for the Competitive Enablement Show on the Compete Network. I'm your host, Adam McQueen. And on season three of the show, we're talking to product marketers and competitive professionals that are looking to give their teams a competitive advantage. I mean, I guess we already did that for season two. But for season three, we're doing it again, but bigger and better and bigger. So join me, producer Ben, and video Grayson every Thursday for the Competitive Enablement Show only on the Compete Network powered by Clue.